0: I'm Debbie Woldridge, CEO of outsourced training company TTC Innovations, which specializes in providing corporations with customized millennial-focused training solutions. Hosting this series with me is best-selling author Hyah Bender, whose credits include five dummies books and a complete idiot's guide, and articles for the New York Times. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com, as we're always adding new interviews and other content. Joining Hi and I today are Amy Rommel and Laura Tan, who are research scientists at the world-renowned Salk Institute for Biological Studies. Welcome, Amy
1: and Laura. Can
0: you give our audience a little bit of background about the Salk Institute?
1: Laura, you want to go
2: first? Sure. My name is Laura Tan. The Salk Institute is named after Jonas Salk, who was a researcher back in the 50s, during the time when the polio epidemic was occurring. This was a virus that was absolutely out of control. It's a little foreign to people of this age, of the millennials of our generation. This was a time when parents were afraid to send their kids out to play during the summers because the polio epidemic was absolutely devastating to young people. And it closed pools, it closed schools, and it would peak at the summer. People with polio would have debilitating paralysis. This was a time when kids would end up in iron lungs and be paralyzed. So it was a really, really scary time, and Jonas Salk was trying to create a vaccine, and he was extremely successful with it. And after he had basically eradicated polio as being a summertime epidemic, the March of Dimes Foundation, which was started to support the sufferers of polio, committed a large sum of money to Salk to create whatever he wanted to create. And he actually wanted to create an institute in which people from all different types of science, whether or not they're a biologist, he was thinking of getting physicists and mathematicians and geneticists all together to pave the way for the next step in science. He went around and he got an offer from the city of San Diego to start his institute overlooking La Jolla, overlooking the ocean. And so that's what he did. With the seed money from the March of Dimes, he created this institute, which started out very small and attracted some of the world's greatest minds one of our first founding scientists was a physicist by the name of Francis Crick, more famously known because of Watson and Crick discovering the structure of DNA. We had quite an impressive set of junior faculty at the time, some of which are still here. So the Salk Institute from that became focused on basic fundamental biology, coming at it from many, many different angles. But it really did gather some of the greatest minds concentrated in our one little spot overlooking the ocean Currently, we have five Nobel laureates. We're actually getting our sixth in January 1st as we welcome our new president, Dr. Elizabeth Lockburn. So we've been really focused on what makes life tick, looking at it from plant biology, the brain, understanding why we age, understanding what happens in a cell, okay, haywire creates cancer. So that has been our focus and, and what we do We're really small compared to the other institutes which are around us. We're right next to the University of California, San Diego, which is a major biological institution as well, as well as the Scripps Research Institute and the Sanford Burnham Prebys, a consortium of institutions which are just across the street.
0: Thanks, Laura. And Amy, can you share with our audience your background and your current research
1: projects? My name is Amy Rommel. I'm a postdoctoral researcher. I came from Dallas, Texas, actually from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And there I worked in a breast cancer research laboratory under the mentorship of David Boothman. And I was studying how breast cancers would become resistant to drugs over time. And it turns out that tumors have this annoying ability to adapt. So if we target one protein to try to kill the cancer, it will mutate itself so it will become resistant to that very drug that you're trying to kill it with. Through a lot of frustration, I realized perhaps I needed to look outside the cells and how to kill cancer because maybe inside the cancer cells, if they can keep overcoming these things by adapting and becoming resistant to the drugs, maybe I need to look on the outside. So after discussing with my mentor, we looked at a whole bunch of publications, including one from Ender Verma here at the Salk Institute. And my Ph.D. mentor had met him several times and said he was an amazing person, a great mentor. So I had that to go off of as well. And then I found his paper that was published shortly after I defended my Ph.D. where one of the hallmarks of brain cancer is there's a lot of blood vessels that feed it. So an obvious drug to treat brain cancer would be a drug that can cut off the blood supply that feeds the tumor, can starve it, and for sure the tumor will not be able to survive. Well, they found in Ender's lab that when you starve the tumor by treating it with this drug, again, annoyingly, that tumor can adapt and evolve to become resistant to that drug. Even though these patients were receiving this drug, the tumor would come back and it would still have blood vessels when there should not be any. So what Ender found was really scary at the time when I read his paper is that one of the ways the tumor can adapt is it can actually take some of its own tumor cells and make those tumor cells become blood vessel cells, creating blood vessels when the tumor could not create it the normal way. So this is how the tumor was able to come back and be resistant to the drug because it could actually go around the whole normal system of creating blood vessels and program some of its own tumor cells to become those. So I read this paper and I was just floored at this finding. And I realized I wanted to work in his lab. So I sent him an email and I said, this is what I want to do. I want to purify these things and find their weakness and kill them because if we can target both the normal blood vessels and these tumor blood vessels, maybe we can solve this problem with the tumor. So he ended up allowing me to come to the lab. I think he liked my idea for a plan. And I came to the lab. I was able to purify these things and find their weakness and target them and kill them. So I thought, success story, right? When I tested this in the tumor model, I basically was able to remove all the tumor's ability to create these tumor driven blood vessel cells. And when I did that, so keep in mind, the tumor can create blood vessels through a normal pathway called angiogenesis, and it can create blood vessels through the tumor pathway by reprogramming some of its own tumor cells to make blood vessels. So I cut off both of these ways that the tumor could create blood vessels. So in theory, it could not feed itself any way possible. And to my very strong dismay, the tumor became hyperinvasive. Meaning as soon as I removed all the sources that the tumor could try to feed itself, it decided to pinch off pieces of tumor and go through the brain until it could latch onto another blood vessel. So basically it could find a way, it just left and started migrating until it could find an existing blood vessel to feed on. Basically, at this point, it was about two and a half years into this project, and that's a long time to be working on something that essentially fails. I had this sort of epiphany where I realized I never asked myself, when the tumor cell became the blood vessel cell, was it still technically a tumor cell? In other words, could it still make a cancer? Could it still make a tumor? And the answer to that question is no. Once the tumor cell was able to reprogram some of itself into these tumor-derived blood vessel cells, it lost its ability to act like a tumor. So I had this aha moment where I was like, okay, all I need to do is reverse engineer this process the tumor's already using, but on a wider scale to reprogram that entire tumor to go to a now non-tumorogenic state. And that's essentially where my project's at right now.
3: That's fascinating. So far you've been working on brain cancer but it sounds like your research might also be relevant to combating other types of cancer.
1: I believe that's the case. I've been looking into several types of cancers already and I've seen similar trends. You can look at literature about breast cancer and lung cancer and colon cancer and pancreatic cancer that all have these states where you can look inside the cancer and see cells inside that essentially are no longer tumorigenic. They're what we call a differentiated state of that tumor cell. Now, I don't necessarily believe all of the differentiated states are like brain cancer. We might have to look into different types of directions that these tumors go to go to this harmless state. But I do believe the big idea that can be applicable to other types of cancers.
3: That would be pretty awesome. You know, I, hope you, I hope you succeed.
1: I hope so
2: too.
0: <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Amy. Laura, can you tell us what brought you
2: to the Salk and a little bit about your current work? I am a postdoctoral fellow at the Salk Institute in the Laboratory of Neuronal Structure and Function. I did my PhD studies at the University of Toronto in neuroscience. There I was looking at how small proteins called t are involved in how the brain perceives and processes stress signals when I was really interested in pursuing postdoctoral studies, so this is a period of time after you've obtained your PhD, I was sitting with another mentor and he mentioned, oh, where do you want to do your postdoctoral studies? And I said, oh, I want to go to Europe. And he said, oh, honey, no. <laughs> so if you want culture, go to Europe. If you want to do great science, go to the United States. So I looked into working with different researchers in the US, and it came up that the Salk Institute could be a potential place for me to land, and it was actually a perfect fit. I was always interested in how the brain perceives and processes these stress signals coming from the environment, whether or not they are something like a lion behind you who's going to attack you, or if it's just the daily stressors of everyday life, so traffic, your job, boyfriend, girlfriend, kids, that sort of thing, and how excess stress can have an effect on human health. I'm looking at this in the context of Alzheimer's disease. Very little is known about the root causes of Alzheimer's disease. We know what proteins are involved. We know some of the mechanisms that are involved, but we don't know really what causes Alzheimer's at its root. So we were looking into how stress can do one of those risk factors. And along the way, I work in interconnected web of stress labs at the Salk Institute. Great place for me to be at the moment. And a former postdoc in our lab had noticed that one of these stress hormones, which is in each and every one of our brains, is evolutionarily found in a lot of different animals too. How this one stress, small protein with peptides could be the link between how stress in our everyday life can be that risk factor. And if you can block that one small protein, that peptide, you can actually prevent certain things happening in the brain that's associated with Alzheimer's. In this case, it's known as a protein called tau. So you can stop tau from being misfolded and aberrant in our brain, and that could actually be a treatment for Alzheimer's disease. I'm taking this one step further and looking at different therapeutics that we could use to treat Alzheimer's and also looking at different methods of getting our drugs into our brain because our brain is extremely well-protected. It's protected by something called the blood-brain barrier, which keeps out a lot of different things, a lot of bad things like viruses, bacteria, but it also keeps out a lot of therapeutics. So if we could find a way to get drugs into the brain in a non-invasive way, We think that patients will be more likely to stick to their regimens, as well as it'll make it a lot easier for caregivers, and so we are targeting this one peptide in our lab currently.
0: Both of your research involves issues of the brain. Is this an area of heavy focus at Salk?
1: While the brain is a pretty strong focus at the Salk Institute, we have a very large neuroscience department that Laura is a part of, and also brain cancer is a big project here. There are many other departments at the Salk Institute. We have one of the world's best plant biology programs here. So, for example, we all love to eat, so we want to make sure our food supply will continue to support all of the growing population on the planet. A lot of their research focuses on that. And we have a lot of regenerative medicine, aging, understanding basic biology, what makes us what we are, and also dealing with human disease.
0: Can you share with our audience some of the general challenges that you feel women face in the world of science?
1: It is very well known
2: in the science community that while the science community does train a lot of women, it is roughly 50% in graduate school when people are getting their master's or getting their PhDs, far fewer end up in academia or pursuing postdocs, as Amy and I are. And then even fewer are becoming professors. A lot of these challenges come from childcare a lot of women will end up wanting to have families, and it's very difficult to be in this very high-pressure, long-hours type profession when you also have to worry about caring for your family and building a family with the time constraints that we have. I think, Amy, you can probably speak to the tenure clock.
1: Yes. In our positions as postdocs, this is sort of a training period in our careers that leads us to our next phase, which is usually lab leadership of some kind, either in a university setting, a research institute, or industry, or even outside of research in general. One of the things both Lauren and I have noticed, we've had many discussions about this, is just as she mentioned, it's pretty much a 50-50 female-male ratio in graduate school. And then as you start to go up, like there's postdoc and then the next phase and the next phase, that percentage starts to decrease. I think just as Laura mentioned, a lot of it is personal choice. A lot of women realize in this field that they can't put the amount of time and effort into going to those leadership positions if they don't have a strong support system for raising a family. And so you end up in that sort of dilemma. And that even becomes more apparent, as Laura mentioned, when we get our next stage of our career, which is most of us want academic or lab leadership of some kind, is there's a tenure period. And during this period, we have to demonstrate that we are successful, that we're world-renowned and that we have high-impact papers and we have our own funding. All of these things are incredibly difficult to get if you don't have a strong support system to help you with raising a family should you choose to go that route. So that's where we lose a lot of people as well. A lot of women have trouble getting tenureship mainly because their priorities cannot be put fully into that basket. So I would have to agree with Laura. That is one of our biggest challenges, our personal challenge. We almost feel like it's a decision we have to make. Either I can be very successful right now or I can have a family and I have to take a step back for a time and then come back to the plate. We're talking about the tenure clock. So it's usually seven years after you get your first academic appointment
2: where they review whether or not you'll get tenure. And, of course, for us, tenure means that you transition from being an assistant professor to either associate or full professor, essentially, or out of your period of uncertainty. But for most institutions, there isn't a way to pause your tenure clock. So just say you have a child during this period where you were trying to get tenure, the clock doesn't stop, even though you might not be in the lab for your maternity leave. And so that puts a lot of stress on families, on female professors who are trying
3: to get tenure.
1: Also, there are some very progressive institutions that do allow a pause for that. So I think it's just a mix, and it entirely depends on where you go.
3: In terms of challenges to women, are there other challenges such as prejudice or even pressures against getting involved with science in the first place when you're uh, in grade school? Do you have anything to say about that kind of thing?
1: I've been very fortunate to grow up during the time that I have grown up in. I have heard stories that women that are much more senior than me in the field have gone through periods of They felt prejudice or they felt like they weren't getting a fair shake. For a long time, science was dominated by men. And these women that had to fight their way to the top during this era did have some trouble. However, in my personal experience, I've never felt that way through my entire schooling and career. I can probably count the number of times I felt maybe a little bit slighted on one hand, And the common theme is some of the men in the field from an older generation still sometimes have problems with it. But I was very, very lucky. I never really felt like I was at a disadvantage. The Salk Institute has policies in place, for example, with postdocs. We are all held to the same standard and the same pay scale and things like that. So I feel like we don't have that discrimination or prejudice. But again, I'm very lucky to have grown up during this time where I never had to experience that. Laura? Did you have different experience than me, or?
2: No, I actually have to agree. I was co-supervised as a PhD student, so one of my supervisors, Susan Rothsinger, she was extremely instrumental during my
1: early graduate
2: studies. She had a family during her assistant professorship. She was a great mentor for me to see that people can still have both. They can still have a family and still be very, very successful. We're extremely fortunate to have such wonderful mentors at the Salk Institute who are pretty much at the top of their field, if not the top of their field, and still have families. So I think maybe we're rare. My other supervisor, David Lovejoy, was extremely supportive of women in his lab. At one time, we didn't have any men in our lab, just him and his three graduate students. I've never really been discriminated against. If at all, it was the very much older generation where they might have had a comment or two, but really, no.
0: (laughs) Can you share with us some of the specific ways Salk offers support on your road to tenure?
1: One thing I've noticed about Salk that really helps, we have an incredible group of women here, women faculty and women postdocs, and we really look out for each other. So it's sort of like a mentoring circle. I communicate with a lot of the women's faculty that have been there, done that. They tell me their experiences that got them to where they're at. And then amongst each other in the postdoc realm, we also sort of mentor each other and help bring each other into different programs that can help. Something that the Institute actually has in place, a program called Women in Science. So it's sort of a bridge between the scientists at Salk and successful women in science or industry, and also the community. They all come together and talk science, happens four times a year right now. Women in Science program started where a woman faculty would give a seminar and the public would be invited. And a lot of the women in the public are industry leaders or women just very curious in science and even young girls that are interested in science. That's how it started, just as a seminar it grew into, okay, we have all of these people that are interested in women in science, so let's build the networking circle even more. So now it's not just faculty that give these seminars, there's even postdocs and grad students that give these seminars, and then afterwards there's a wonderful networking opportunity where we can meet other women leaders in the field it's a great bridge between scientists with each other and also with the community to build this mentoring circle even more. And in the near future, we're even going to be launching some programs for additional leadership training geared towards women. And then on top of that, that last year, we were able to award two fellowships. It shows that for that time that you're under that fellowship, you are an independent researcher. You can fund your own salary, even some supply costs for your research. It looks really good on a researcher's resume or CV if they can be independently funded. In other words, they don't have to rely on their lab to get their project funded. They can actually obtain their own independent funding for their research project. So it's really important for their career growth to demonstrate that. It's an incredible program.
3: And where's the funding coming from that?
1: It's all private donors. Over the years, they started fundraising for this private philanthropy.
3: Whatever kinds of training programs does Salk have in place?
2: One of our things that we always have to do as, as scientists is be able to communicate to the public. Communicate in terms that anybody could understand. We think it's one of our biggest responsibilities is to be able to communicate our knowledge to the public because if we don't, they won't understand what we're doing. and We don't want to be stuck in an ivory tower. We want to be part of the community as well. So. One of the things that Amy and I both help to facilitate is a program that once a day we gather scientists, volunteers, postdocs, graduate students, and we do public talks in the courtyard of the Salk Institute where anyone from the public can come. And for 15 minutes a day, just chat with scientists from all different types of all the different fields. So on a specific day, somebody could be speaking about cancer biology or someone could be speaking about plant biology or neuroscience. And it's a really good chance for the public to converse with scientists who are down in the trenches doing the research.
1: One of the most important things that scientists can do besides publishing is to demonstrate that they can achieve independent funding for their project. So we have workshops that help scientists learn how to write these applications, which can at times be very daunting. We deploy those workshops, and we ask for those through the Society of Research Fellows and got those funded for the Institute. In addition to those type of programs, the Society of Research Fellows does a scientific retreat. This is where we take all of the scientists at the Salk Institute off-site just a little bit. It's literally 15 minutes down the road. Be together in the same space and discuss science just getting people together, people that would not normally be together in the same space at the same time. Salk Institute is so broad in the type of research that happens. You could end up discussing brain cancer with somebody that does Alzheimer's research, in the case of Laura and I, which we're starting to collaborate because of that, or you could be talking to a plant biologist and you're working in a totally different field.
3: You both mentioned mentorship. Does Salk have any specific programs in place to support mentorship, or does it happen entirely on an informal basis?
1: It happens informally. Mentorship is either you seek out mentors or you happen upon good mentors. And I think I've been lucky enough to get both. I have incredible mentors, primary mentor Ender Verma, who runs our lab, and also with other women's faculty and other faculty in general at Salk. So I got really lucky with that. And also mentors outside of the faculty at all. Laura is actually an inspirational force for me as well. So I think it's important to surround yourself with good, strong role models. And you have to go after that. You have to create that circle around you. And then sometimes you get really lucky and just land in the right place as well. So I think I've experienced both of those.
2: We kind of have a mentorship set up organically from the get-go because we are supervised by a senior faculty member. But beyond that, we are extremely encouraged to increase our mentorship circle. For the Society of Research Fellows this program, Coffee with a PI, and PI being Principal Investigator or Professor, and it gives us the opportunity to speak with professors at all levels. So whether or not they're a senior professor, it might be someone who's more of a junior faculty, And it's a really nice, informal way of being able to sit down and just chat with them about pretty much anything. A lot of professors have this policy where you just literally can make an appointment with them and talk about science, or you don't even have to talk about science. A lot of them are very, very personable. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Falk is that because we're so small, all of these professors, all of these senior faculty members are very accessible and they're very open to speaking to the more junior members, including the postdocs, graduate students. So it's very organic that way. And I think part of our training is that we have to find ways to grow our mentorship circle on our own. So it, the impetus is on us. Amy spoke about how the faculty around her, the postdocs around her have all mentored her, but we have to go out and find that ourselves. And I think that is part of our training because no matter where we go, we're going to need some sort of mentorship, but you have to learn how to find that.
3: What advice would you give to someone who wanted to become part of the Salk Institute?
1: If they want to be a scientist here, my advice to a high school student would be to be a part of the March of Dimes program, so if we bring high school kids into the Salk Institute for internships over the summer. It's a college student, email scientists on the papers that they see and see if they have openings for internships at the Salk Institute. If somebody already has their degree and they want to be a scientist, for example, we have technician-level jobs that you can get a bachelor's degree or master's degree, and you can work in one of these beautiful labs and help postdocs and the graduate students with their projects. That requires degrees and then PhDs for independent research positions. That's kind of how the science track works. It's basically who you know is my story of how I got in. My Ph.D. mentor knew Ender, and I had an ability to get into his lab because Ender knew the type of lab I came from. So it's really important to increase your pool of people you know. So go to networking events, go to conferences, present as often as you can because it's so important to just meet people and to become known in some way. It will help you get those jobs. We've spoken a lot about the science side For the administrative side, we have so many incredible people that make it possible for us to do what we do. We have people that their job is to fundraise, help fund all of our work. The truth of the matter is, we don't always get those grants. We don't always get those fellowships. So we need sometimes bridge money to help make these projects happen. We have departments that are dedicated to raising money for the institute. With them as well, it's a lot who you know. So again, going back to how important networking is, Almost all of those people got their jobs here because they knew somebody that was here or they knew somebody that knew somebody that was here. It gets you into the door.
3: Are there other things about Salk that you think would be especially helpful to know?
1: I have just one thing I didn't mention before, which I think is important. A lot of companies have terms called open door policy, and everything in the Salk Institute is open. There are no closed doors. So one of the really neat things, for example, about my lab is we all sit around the lab with each other, and all the labs are open to all the other labs. Everything's open. There's no closed doors. And even Ender's office is right next to the lab, and his doors are always open. So you can just walk right in whenever you want to talk to him. You don't even need to schedule an appointment. If he's there and not on the phone, you just walk in and talk to him. So I think that is one of the most incredible things about this institute that sets it apart, because when everything's open, you really foster that sense of collaboration. You really build your team. And I think that's one of the secrets to the success of the Institute and the success of a lot of the scientists that are a part of it. Just to add
2: to what Amy said, and she was actually, she took the words right out of my mouth. Sorry. But, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's cool. <laughs> Essentially the architecture itself. Louis Kahn was the architect who designed the Salk Institute with Jonas Salk. And the openness, and the lack of doors between the labs actually really does foster this collaboration. There's a lot of open spaces around where we work. There are a lot of different spots where scientists or even support staff can sit around and have a coffee and just come up with new ideas. And I think that's one of the most unique things about the Institute of, is how the building itself actually fosters this collaboration and allows us to do our jobs better. Yeah, and I
0: was going to ask you about that. The architecture is amazing. I've had the pleasure of walking on the campus and touring it, and I can only imagine how supportive that is of innovative ideas and sitting out and reflecting, looking over the ocean. The Salk Institute has one of the best pieces of real estate in the San Diego area
1: really cool point you brought up because I've worked at a lot of other places before. And you know how if you're just having a bad day and nothing's working, what's the first thing you want to do? You want to leave. You want to go for lunch somewhere. You want to drive down the street to the park or something and sit, right? That's what a lot of people want to do to just mentally escape from a bad day. Well, here, I don't feel the need to ever do that. No matter how bad my day is, I'll just walk out to the courtyard, look over at the ocean, you know, that my escape is here. I cannot say that about any other place I've ever worked, but my escape is literally here.
2: Yeah, for each and every one of us it's about a 1 minute walk to see the ocean, which I don't think many places can actually boast. I do have the escape that I'll sometimes just walk down the stairs and go through the doors which are open and then just go up for coffee and we can talk about what's going on. It's really special to stand on the balconies and get that ocean breeze and and just look out at the ocean and I don't know, there's a sense of calm that, you know, it's going to be okay. Your experiments will eventually work. You just have to figure <laughs> out what's going on.
3: <laughs> it's a sense of perspective also. I mean, you're working on these weighty, world-changing things. So if you ever get bogged down in minutiae, it can be nice to look at the ocean and kind of get reset into the perspective of what it is you're working on. Amy and Laura, I want to thank you both enormously for talking to us and sharing with us a glimpse of how amazing it is to work at Salk Institute and to share your experiences and the really fascinating research projects that you're engaged in.
0: Amy and Laura, I echo High's appreciation. Thank you so much for sharing with our audience a glimpse into your research projects, the information about the Salk Institute, and the amazing opportunities available for both women and millennials at the Salk Institute. We really appreciate you sharing your time and your
1: expertise. Thanks for having us on. <laughs> Thank you both so much. It was really a lot of fun.
0: Hi, and I thank you for listening to this interview. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com, as we're always adding new interviews and other content designed to help you find a job or enhance your career.